Hi there. This is Judith O'Day from George Romero's original Night of the Living Dead. You're listening to Then Is Now Podcast. Warning! Warning! Today's episode contains spoilers. So if you have not seen the movie or TV show that we are talking about, we highly recommend that you watch it first, then listen to this episode. Thank you. Rise and shine, my sinners. When Father Evil starts his day, he gets a little deadly. Deadly Grounds Coffee has the richest, smoothest flavor you'll find anywhere. It's sinfully delicious. Once you go deadly, you never go back. Order yours at getdeadly.com. Coffee's so good, it's scary. Hello and welcome to Then Is Now Podcast's yearly 13 Days of Hallowtober event. I'm your host, Rigor. Today, I'm once again joined by John Grace, host of Midnight Movie Cowboys. John joined my co-host Patsy and I on a two-part episode of my other show, The East Meets the West, where we delve deep into the Shaw Brothers Company and Spaghetti Westerns as a whole. He was also with me on an episode of last year's 13 Days, where the topic was zombies, and we covered the Hong Kong film Kung Fu Zombies. Glad you could be with me today, John. Hey, great to be here. Always fun to come back. Awesome, awesome. So, John, can you just quickly refresh our listeners about your show? Uh, I am a co-host of the Midnight Movie Cowboys, which is hosted by an Australian, a Texan, and a Coloradan. I'm the Coloradan. And uh, we just cover all sorts of uh, movies, uh, mainstream, drive-in level, cult movies, foreign films, every type of film there is. Sometimes we cover true crime. Yeah, just just anything. We have interesting guests. It's a pretty bizarre show. There's a lot of comedy, a lot of offensive comedy. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's great fun. It's great fun. I totally recommend that people should check it out when they get a chance. It's on all the podcasting apps, I assume? Uh, yeah, we just started on YouTube about half a year ago and have surprisingly seen our audience grow. I wasn't really big on the YouTube thing because I thought it would hurt the theater of the mind effect of the show because we have some some oddball guests every now and then that people didn't know if they were real people or not. <laughs> uh, but uh, but it's actually worked out very well for us. We've, we've gotten some uh, some great numbers, particularly when we cover Kung Fu films, which I guess is sort of my specialty. Excellent, excellent. Well, that, that comes in handy because uh, today, as I mentioned, we're continuing our yearly event called 13 Days of Hallowtober, and our theme this year is vampire movies. And today, John and I are going to discuss the Hong Kong film Mr. Vampire from 1985. So sit back and prepare to listen to our discussion of a fun Chinese vampire picture. Class is in session. Something old. Something red. Something's coming. Something dead. creepy classic that spawned the hit horror series. 
martial arts meets monster mayhem. Four stars. on video cassette. In Republic era China, Master Cao makes a living as a Taoist priest who performs magic that maintains control over spirits and irresponsible vampires. Together with his inept students, Man Choi and Chao Sang, he resides in a large house protected from the spiritual world with talismans and amulets. One day, he accepts an assignment from a wealthy businessman, Yam, to remove Yam's deceased father from his grave and rebury him, with the hopes that doing so will bring more prosperity to the Yam family. However, during the raising of the coffin, Cao notices the body, instead of in a decomposed state, is still intact. Knowing it has become a vampire, he has it moved to his house for further study, which is a brilliant idea. Once in the house, Choi and Sang line the coffin with enchanted ink to safeguard the body, but they forget to line the bottom of the coffin, causing the vampire to break out. It heads straight for Yam's home and savagely kills his son before going into hiding by dawn. Why, an incompetent police inspector who is smitten with Yam's daughter Ting, blames Cao for murdering Yam and arrests him. Cao is imprisoned and Yam's body is placed in a makeshift morgue near the jailhouse. Choi stays at Yam's house to protect Ting, while Sang frees his master only to witness Yam reawakening as a vampire. Cao and Sang manage to kill it after engaging it in battle. Y realizes his mistake in framing Cao earlier and accepts the fact that another vampire is on the loose. The vampire again invades Yam's house. Cao and Sang arrive in time to wound it and forcing it to flee, but not before it critically wounds Choi. Cao invites Ting to stay at his house for safety. The next morning, after examining Choi's wounds, Cao claims he too may become a vampire. He orders Sang to feed Choi glutinous rice, claiming it may decrease the vampire's venom in Choi's body and bring him back to his normal state. While purchasing the rice, however, the shady merchant deliberately mixes different kinds of rice in the bag and an unwitting Sang accepts it. Before Sang can get home, he's lured by a mysterious woman into her house. He soon deduces she's a spirit, but she uses her supernatural power to seduce him, and they sleep together for the night. When Sang returns to Cao's house, the priest is quick to notice his student's predicament. That night, he silently follows Sang to the spirit's house. The spirit transforms into a hideous ghoul and attempts to kill Cao, but fails at the hands of his talismans. She bewitches Sang to turn on his master, but after a brief fight, Cao breaks the spell and she escapes. The next night, Cao ties Sang to a chair and prepares to capture and eliminate the spirit. Sure enough, she arrives at their house and Cao chases her throughout. As Sang tries to free himself, Choi turns into a vampire and attacks him. Amidst the chaos, Cao restrains Choi and almost terminates the spirit, but stops when Sang begs him to let her go. Saddened she can no longer be with Sang, the spirit flies away. 
Over the next few days, Kyle restores Choi's health and turns him back to human. Y brings in news that the vampire is now active again. When Kyle leaves to investigate, the vampire, now in an almost demonic form, invades Kyle's place. After pushing Choi off a balcony, it turns its attentions to Ting and Y, but Kyle and Sang again divert its attention. Finally, Kyle's fellow Taoist priest, Four Eyes, shows up by coincidence, and they manage to destroy the vampire by burning it alive. So, John, uh, when did you first see this film, and what was your first impression? Uh, I first saw it in, I believe, 1989. I got a hold of one of those uh, copies of a Chinatown videotape rental, because <laughs> we used to have two or three companies in America that would sell these films to only to Chinatown video stores, which was a big market. And uh, it had subtitles. The quality was fairly bad, particularly by today's standards. It was, um, you know, I I loved it. I had already heard it was a classic. And I'm not of the opinion that horror and comedy are a very good combination because other than Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, there are not a lot of them I like. And uh, I was blown away by this because it had it had some horror, which it's not the same type of horror that was real big in the 80s, I guess. But it was sort of like Ghostbusters, I suppose. It had martial arts action. It had the comedy. The comedy was actually very funny. Uh, if you've seen a good number of Chinese comedies, you know, sometimes the humor doesn't translate well to Americans. But uh, in this case, it actually translates pretty well i mean they kept it very slapstick oriented and also the gimmick of the chinese vampires was was pretty new and their vampire mythology is very different from ours and uh it's more based on taoism instead of christianity so it, it was a very unique viewing experience and i probably watched that tape you know 10 times and eventually when i got a subtitled laser disc version uh watched that a bunch of times and then um you know i've gone through at least three or four different DVD editions. So it, it has that, uh, that, that high status of a film. I probably recollected on uh, different video releases more than any other. That's awesome. And I think uh, when we were talking off mic, you said it's on Blu-ray, right? Yeah, I just got a, uh, a Blu-ray came out in China uh, a couple of years ago. It was said to look pretty good, but I waited on this British Blu-ray uh, that came out from Eureka. And I don't think they've made an American edition, which is unfortunate. I wish they would. Um, Americans really should should see this stuff. I think horror fans in North America would love it. But the Eureka Blu-ray was based on a new, I believe, 2K scan from the negative. Looks amazing. I've never, I didn't think the film was capable of looking like this because uh, 20th Century Fox released a, a DVD in the early 00s in America, and it did not look very good. And a lot of that Golden Harvest stuff has never really looked quite it's never looked more than mediocre on DVD. And, uh, and I think it's because of the photography or, or whatever, but um, I'm sure there's various technical reasons, but this DVD or I'm sorry, Blu-ray is gorgeous. I looked at it yesterday for the first time and I was kind of blown away. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And you know, I agree with your assessment uh, on the comedy as well. And it's in my notes that the, the comedy held up. Well, a lot of times foreign comedy doesn't necessarily translate well to other countries, but I saw this in the 90s, uh, similar to you, I grew up north of Boston and my buddy and I would go into Harvard Square and there was a shop in there that would sell bootleg VHS tapes of Hong Kong cinema and we'd collect them and my buddy bought this one and we watched it and I, I loved it, I remember really enjoying it and it was just one of those things that over the years it kind of got away from me and I, it wasn't until um, 
I don't know, about a year or two ago, a friend of mine got me a digital copy of it. And so I watched it um, in preparation for this. And it was beautiful. It was a beautiful print. And yeah, this movie is just one of those ones that sticks with you. It's so good. And and so would you say this was one of the first ones? I think you might have said this. Uh, to present sort of the Chinese vampire in movies? Uh, it's not the first to present them because they would often... I, I keep rediscovering that they were in these different films in the 70s and maybe even the 60s, but they were kind of like a... Um, uh, I don't know. It's not really a subplot. They were more like a visual uh, peripheral thing in the film. They weren't the main point of the, the, the Gyeonzi scene, I think is how they pronounce it, or Gyeonshi or whatever. And... Um, you would you would see them in different movies. I think maybe the Shaolin Invincibles had a had a scene with the Gyanzi. I'm not not 100. Maybe the Spiritual Boxer. I haven't seen these in a while. But um, this was the first one to really exploit it and say, "Hey, this is a this is the Chinese vampire movie," and uh, it was quite a sensation uh, at the box office in Hong Kong and Taiwan, and I think it must have done well in Japan. Because uh, there was just a slew of knockoffs and imitations. So it really created that um, Chinese vampire wave of films in a way that Sammo Hung's earlier film, Encounters of the Spooky Kind, did not. And that probably kicked off the Hong Kong horror boom. But Mr. Vampire really solidified the the Chinese vampire thing. Because there's more... Imit I'm still discovering imitations of Mr. Vampire. <laughs> digging up old videos of uh, different Hong Kong films and Taiwanese movies. Right, right. And we're going to actually talk about another film on a, on a separate show of, uh, that sort of ripped this film off, among others. So yeah. let's just dive into the, the cast and crew a little bit here. So it was directed by Ricky Lau. What can you tell us about Ricky Lau? Uh, he was somebody who worked with uh, Samuel Hung's company. I think it's uh, Bojan. I forget what the credit is, like Bojan Films, because they were different with similar names. Look at his history. It's funny. He wasn't like he directed Two Toothless Tigers, which is like an adequate movie. I think made for Garbo films with Samo and uh, uh, it says a Yi Yun in it, which I don't remember liking the film all that much. But uh, obviously, he had a affinity for comedy and he could do the slapstick action, and that's probably what counted at Samo's company. And his career is odd because you would think. I mean, he did do Where's Officer Tuba. But other than Mr. Vampire movies and Encounters of the Spooky Kind 2, which is a very good film that Warner Brothers is currently sitting on, by the way. I, we might get into that later. <laughs> but um, other than that, it, he did not have this extensive career that I thought he would have had making a film like this. And uh, sometimes I wonder if these guys just get overworked from it. But he mainly did all the Mr. Vampire sequels and he did some of the knockoffs. He even did Spooky Family 2. I don't think he directed the first Spooky Family. So um, it's it's pretty it's an interesting if a somewhat erratic career, I guess, or scattershot career. That's interesting. And apparently he made a movie last year called Dallas Priest, which I'm just finding this out now. Oh, wow. How odd. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. So maybe they were trying to bring that. Looks like they were trying to bring the Mr. Vampire thing back, like kind of like how we are with the Western or certain types of nostalgia films. There's always an attempt to bring a certain subgenre back and doesn't always succeed. I, I guess Exorcist films kind of made a comeback a few years ago because I noticed there were several exorcism movies out. Right. Or haunted house movies. And yeah. here it looks like they've every now and then they try to revive the Mr. Vampire thing. And sometimes I wonder if it's because this film was not released in mainland China in the eighties. As far as I know, people forget these are Hong Kong movies, which means they played Hong Kong. They played Taiwan. 
maybe they played South Korea and this was a hit in South Korea. And sometimes they, if they were lucky, they got a release in Japan, but they did not play mainland China. Like, in fact, China didn't see Bruce Lee films until the 90s, I believe, wow. at least in a large format. So I think what they're trying to do, because they have these new viewers in China who have some maybe some interest in old Hong Kong movies. There's a few. They they try to capitalize, say, hey, can we make Mr. Vampire work for the mainland Chinese? Because got all these movie theaters and it needs product and Chinese based product. But I, I think one issue with that is supposedly and I don't know how true it really is. Beijing has a censorship issue with movies portraying the supernatural. So I don't know if they work a way around that. When I see this Taoist priest movie, I'll kind of get it. But this was filmed in China that I'm looking at right now. This movie I just learned about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll have to add that to my list, too. i got to check that out. Yeah, well. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to hunt it down. It's uh, since they closed my uh, local Chinese bootleg shop. Yeah. Uh, down down. <laughs> Down in uh, Federal's Little Saigon area, I'm kind of, uh, you know, I have to hunt these things a bit harder. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And you mentioned Sammo Hung, and I believe he uh, produced this film, correct? Yes, he did. Yeah. Uh, Sammo was having quite a production boom in the 80s and uh, a really good track record as a director as well, or at least what he's credited with. Yeah. I mean, that, I think that's part of what explains why this film is so good is because he was behind it in some capacity, you know. Yeah, and I didn't realize it ran over budget. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Um, Ricky, La- Ricky Lawson, he goes, it ran over budget. It ended up costing twice as much as what budget did it for, which was like, it was supposed to be like a Hong Kong four million, um, you know, which is like 200 grand US or something silly like that. But um, he said it ended up costing like eight over eight million Hong Kong dollars. And they filmed it supposedly in two weeks. Wow. That's yeah, they, they work 12 hours a day and... They have their shots planned and, you know, that stunt work has to has to be pulled off right away or you can end up with injured stuntmen. And um, <laughs> the and this does have some really eye popping stunts. And also they're shooting without sound, so they don't have to worry about doing multiple takes of dialogue. Right. Right. That's true. And you mentioned Ricky Lau. He's one of the writers credited on this film. Yeah, this actually unusual for a Hong Kong movie. Uh, it has multiple writers. Uh and I noticed Barry Wong is one of the contributors. Barry Wong probably contributed to every major film of the Hong Kong New Wave. Uh, I think, including, I think his final uh, work was maybe Hard Boiled, uh, the John Woo movie, which I believe was dedicated to him. I, mean, I might be wrong on that. Don't don't quote me. But uh, Barry Wong like wrote, I believe, a lot of Jackie Chan's popular films, uh, most of John Woo's movies. Um, he did a lot of work. I think some Stephen Chow films as well. Uh, very prolific, very uh, dependable screenwriter. And uh, there's there's other credited writers. And in an interview uh, with Ricky Lau that's on the Eureka Blu-ray that I believe was ported over from the Hong Kong Legends DVD uh, out of England, uh, he said there was a lot of writers working on this. Like in, like Eric Chang contributed uh, scenes and jokes. And they kind of worked as a committee, but unlike the way it's done in Hollywood, where it's almost like screenwriters are trying to basically eradicate the previous writer's work so they can get their name on the script instead of the previous guy um here they they kind of collaborate to help to make the best movie possible hmm. instead of uh, hey i'm gonna replace this scene you did with this scene that makes no sense because i want a credit on this film they they don't have that attitude like there's uncredited writers on this film and i know that ricky Lau said eric chang helped out with the script as well wow oh, that's cool <clears throat> so let's dive into the cast a little bit here, and I'm, I'm going to go through the cast, and then you can come back and, and tell me about the different actors. 
Um, so we've got Lam Ching Ying, who played Master sure. Cao. Um, he's the unibrowed priest that specialized in the Taoist supernatural mm-hmm. arts. Uh, Ricky Hui plays Man Choi, which uh, he's one of Cao's students. And in the version I watched, I don't know if it was the same for you, the subtitle said his name was Dan, which I thought was interesting. Um, <laughs> you know, no, I don't believe mine said that, but I didn't watch the subtitle. <laughs> Well, because then we also had Chin Su Hoi, I'm sorry, Chin Su Ho as Chow Sang, and he came up as Harry on the subtitles. <laughs> Must have been an Australian video print. Sounds like something they'd do. Maybe, maybe. Uh, Moon Lee played Ting Sing, who is Master Yam's daughter. Huang Ha played Master Yam. He's a rich man. He's apparently killed by the vampire that comes back from the dead to be like his late father. Uh, Anthony Chan uh, is on board as Priest Four Eyes. Uh, he uses magic to control the hopping corpses and transport them to their hometowns for burial. Pauline Wong Shufeng played Jade, who was the female ghost. Billy Lau played Wai, who was the cowardly police inspector. And Yuan Hua was one of the hopping corpses. So um, tell us a little bit about, um, do you know anything about Lam Ching Ying? Ching Ying? Uh, yeah, he was... Um... He started out, I believe, as he was Bruce Lee's choreography assistant in his original uh, films uh, in the early 70s. And he was an experienced uh, guy at the Golden Harvest stunt crew and ended up doing a lot of acting much later on. If you see if you watch Enter the Dragon, uh, which might be the most best known film of that Bruce Lee era, uh, Lam Ching Ying is doubling for Shek Kin when Bruce, Mr. Lee is fighting uh, Mr. Han, Han in the finale. That's actually okay. Lam Ching doubling for Shek King. Shek King was too old to be taking these bumps and bruises from Bruce Lee's fight choreography. So <laughs> if you look, if you look closely in slow mo, you'll see it's Lam Ching Ying playing Han. And um, he, it's funny because he did a lot of bit parts. You'll always see him as henchman and. Uh, he doubles for people. He's a very skilled fighter, very skilled um, action guy. And there's a lot of different roles. And then he sort of had a breakthrough with, um, you know, he had some comedic bit parts before this, but he had a breakthrough in Samuel Hung's film in 1981, The Prodigal Son, where he gave this amazing performance as a Wing Chun teacher. And it's probably, it's still regarded as the best Wing Chun movie ever made. I don't think the Yip Man movies are even close. They're not in the same ballpark. Wow. And part of the reason that works is his performance is so um, endearing. It's a terrific uh, performance. It's it's some very good acting. Everybody says these films don't have good acting. They don't know what the hell they're talking about. And, um, th- and then he got major roles after that. He started playing bigger roles, especially in like uh, the dead and the deadly and, and uh, he's in Encounters of the Spooky Kind as the inspector. But Mr. Vampire kind of made him a superstar, like an identifiable star. And uh, because he became nicknamed the One Eyebrow Priest. And he was able to recycle this role in so many different films and kind of extended his career in a good way. He didn't have to worry about doing stunt work all the time. But you will you will see him in various uh, Golden Harvest action films of the 80s and 90s and films of Jackie Chan and Sammo Hung and, and they're different actors. He even had a, he did a movie <laughs> a uh, a tribute to Mr. Vampire. Uh, he did a film called Crazy Safari uh, which co-starred, it was, por- portions of it were filmed in Africa and uh, it was written by Barry Wong and the funny thing is it stars it co-stars Lam Ching Ying and um, 
that actor, the Bushman from The Gods Must Be Crazy. Oh, wow. Nigzow or whatever his name is. I <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's crazy. Which uh, It's a worthwhile film to hunt down. What's the name of it again? Crazy Safari. Crazy Safari. I'm going to write that down. I'm going to have to. Yeah, Crazy up. Safari. Um, it In the film, uh, this Nigzow guy is being chased by rival Bushmen. So... <laughs> Lam Ching Ying gives him a spell, a Taoist spell to turn him into Bruce Lee, where he becomes possessed by Bruce Lee. <laughs> and there's a scene where Nick Zhao is doing Bruce Lee. I mean, it's obviously a stunt double doing Bruce Lee moves on different Bushmen. And then he's doing the facial expressions and the nose wiping with the thumb and everything, you know, and lecturing the people he just beat up. So it's, it's pretty hilarious. That's funny. That's funny. So we mentioned Ricky Hui, who played Man Choi uh, or Choi mm-hmm. or Dan, whatever you prefer. I liked his performance here. I thought he played the comedy well, although I felt like he looked a little old for what he was playing. I I got the impression he was supposed to be like in his 20s and he looked like he was closer to 40. But I would have actually liked to have seen Chiang Sheng play that part. He would have been awesome in that role. Yeah, um, Ricky Hoy was part of the Hoy Brothers uh, team of the 70s, a comedy and music team that was, um, they had a TV show and they did uh, some films for Golden Harvest that were the biggest hits in Golden Harvest history and the highest grossing Hong Kong movies of all time. Every time they were released, uh, the Hoy brothers would put out a new film and it would be the record breaking Hong Kong movie release. Uh, Michael Hui usually wrote and directed them. Uh, he was in a Cannonball Run with Jackie Chan. Oh, yeah. Uh, Sam Hui, uh, who later broke off on his own and did the Aces Go Places movies at Cinema City, a rival studio, um, was a very popular uh, singer, probably the most popular, who was sort of like an Elvis of Hong Kong. He's considered the father of canto pop because he pretty much invented singing pop music in Cantonese. Because huh. apparently it was considered a tough language to, I guess, to get pop, to do pop music based on Cantonese lyrics. And um, so he was a superstar and he was handsome. So some people have compared it to be like, uh, okay, Michael Huey was Jerry Lewis and uh, Sammy was uh, Dean Martin. You know, Sam Huey would be the Dean Martin. And then they brought in their brother, Ricky, who at the time could only do cameos in the first two films uh, because he still had a contract at Shaw Brothers. But uh, they did a Hong Kong TV show uh, where they did sketch comedy and Ricky was a big part of that. Now, the thing about Ricky, of course, was he was he was not handsome like Sam. And um, he was a bit, but he had, it's funny because he had kind of like the Beatle haircut or whatever, but yeah. he didn't look like Michael and he had a different type of comedy than Michael. He was more of a slapstick, uh, pathetic type of, um, you know, um, I, I, it's hard to think of, more like a, um, would it be a Lou Costello type? I don't know. I can't think of an immediate comparison. I, right. And I hate making that type of comparison. Hey, he's like Burt Reynolds. He's like Sammy <laughs> Davis. But, um, it's, well, he it's reminded kind of me of comparison. Red Skelton. Yeah, yeah, it's that type of comedy slapstick. It's a bit different. And it's a little he's a little deadpan a lot. He has kind of a deadpan expression on his face a lot, which is part of the so I guess he's com- a combo of the straight man and the funny man. But uh Ricky when he was able to be freed of his Shaw Brothers contract, he goes over to Golden Harvest and not only does he play major roles in the Hoy Brothers comedies like The Private Eyes, he uh ends up starring in his own comedies at Golden Harvest like uh, I think one was called uh, Money Crazy. 
and it was directed by John Woo and is actually a very funny film. It's worth seeking out. I think it's one of the John Woo movies that has aged really well because I don't think a lot of his films have aged well. But uh, the comedy is so so fast and perfect. It's like John Woo, I think, had a better better knack for comedy than action, of all things. <laughs> uh, but Ricky was sort of a comedy star of his own. And so when he co-starred in this, I think he was already considered a comedy superstar. And I think he was considered the box office draw at one point because the last, the final Huey Brothers film of the Golden Harvest contract was Security Unlimited. And Security Unlimited, he is pretty much the star. You know, Sammy was about to jump to Cinema City and his role is a supporting role. Uh, Michael's part isn't even as big as Ricky's. It's it's kind of interesting. It's like Ricky Hoy's movie. Huh. And um, and so Ricky was kind of the, the staple comedy guy at Golden Harvest in the 80s. Wow, that's amazing. I had no idea. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, or comedy relief, I guess. I wouldn't say he's a superstar, but you know, having him in the film helped quite a bit. He was a, he's a big pop culture icon there. Wow. Well, I could see why they put him in this role then, because that would it's bankable, you know. Right, right, and plus the audience thinks he's funny. You know, the the Chinese audience. You go see a, a Chinese comedy back in the day when they had the Chinatown movie theaters. You go see a Cantonese comedy, and the audience in there is laughing at stuff you don't even pick up on. Yeah, like I went to see some Stephen Chow movies there; they were cracking up at stuff I didn't know what the hell they were cracking up at because it, <laughs> I guess. It, and it turns out there's things in Cantonese slang, and there's subtle humor that uh, a Westerner is not going to catch unless we're Cantonese fluent and we we know the lingo of Hong Kong. And you know, it's just kind of uh, it was a little a little over my head, but, but they were cracking up. They just acted like they were dying of laughter. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. Um, so what about yeah. some of the other cast? Is there anything you want to mention? I know this Chin Su Ho and Billy Lau. Uh, Chin Su Ho is, um, started out at Shaw brothers as sort of an action star, uh, goes over to golden harvest, very talented man, acrobat can fight. Like you wouldn't believe you see him in some movies like blonde fury with Cynthia Rothrock. He's amazing in that film. Uh, later in the 90s, uh, kind of spent his time as the uh, Jet Li's uh, fellow student who betrays him or goes bad because I guess he could keep up with Jet Li's fight choreography pretty easily and Jet Li's various fight doubles. And he's a very talented martial artist and uh, actor and um, kind of the leading man you always thought should have been a way bigger star, but was not, you know, and for whatever reason that happens, who knows why. Right, right. Yeah. Maybe if he came along five years earlier, he might have had a healthier career because he kind of came in as a traditional kung fu film was dying off, and that was really his skill. But uh, he's it, he's always interesting to watch in any film. Right, right. He was good in this. I really liked him in this. Yeah. Um, and now Billy Lau is a name that's familiar to me. What can you tell me about him? Billy Lau. Let me look at this because I got to refamiliarize myself with these guys. Um. Can't really tell you much about him. I believe he is a comedy co-star. So I'm looking. At, yeah, I'm looking at this, and he kind of makes cameos as the as a geeky character that harasses people or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Troublemaker, you know, the authority figure that gets pranked, that sort of thing. Moon Lee had a very vibrant career in that decade, and the the funny thing is, when she retired from showbiz about 20 years ago, or maybe a little longer, she settled in Denver, Colorado, and I believe may still live here. Oh wow. I have never encountered her here, but she did marry a local doctor who was uh, very, very famous in the Denver area. And then they had an ugly divorce. And but she is supposedly still in Denver or Denver area teaching dance. But I do not know where. Oh, uh, but uh, but she want to understand, um, you know, she's 
sometimes has an active Facebook account. She she writes in English and she says sometimes she encounters fans in Denver who recognize her. So she always <laughs> cracks it. Uh, Yunwa, who played the vampire. Yunwa, if you watch Enter the Dragon, you will see uh, Bruce Lee's character do flips. Like he does a backflip on Bob Wall and kicks him in the head and uh, does a backflip at the beginning fighting with Sammo Hung. That's actually Yunwa. Yunwa was the acrobat double for Bruce Lee in Enter the Dragon. And that's what he, because uh, his specialty was flipping. And I often suspect he is, if you see the movie Inframan, I suspect Yunwa is one of the Inframan uh, guys in the suit doing the flips and the kicks. Oh, okay. Oh, because wow. Inframan's movements are movements that Yunwa specializes in because he's an amazing acrobat and fighter. And he did more acting in the late 70s up to the 80s and 90s where he played a villain in Easter Condors and Dragons Forever. And he's just incredible in those films. Uh, fights, fights like a devil, man. And... Uh, also, he's uh, if you see the movie Kung Fu Hustle, the Stephen Chow film, uh, he Chow gives a lot of the comedy to Yun Hua because Yun Hua plays uh, the husband and this old couple that's uh, <laughs> gets into. I mean, they take up half the film as the stars of the film, right? And um, Yun Hua is just spectacular. He's a terrific actor and um, incredible martial artist. He's actually one of my favorite of those old Hong Kong character actors who could do it all. Oh, that's cool. I saw that in the theater when it came out, um, what, like 20 years ago, something like that? Yeah, yeah. Gonna You'll remember Yunwa did Sleeping Kung Fu. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, is there anything else you wanted to talk about the rest of the cast? Uh, well, Wu, I'm looking at the cast list, and Wu Ma is in the film. Wu Ma played the, uh, the singing Taoist priest in a Chinese ghost story in that trilogy of films and has also directed quite a few films since the 70s. Uh, Nobody else really jumps out at me is a big deal to talk about, you know, but I, I think we've given enough info on the, on the cast here <laughs> to uh, to help people out with their first viewing. Exactly, exactly. So I just want to give a little background on, as you mentioned, John, the Shang-Chi, which is the Chinese version of the vampire. They're, they're hopping vampires. They're these reanimated corpses in Chinese legends and folklore. Um, it's, I guess in Cantonese, it's Gengshi. Yeah. I've also heard Gyeongshi is is sometimes it sounds like to say Gyeongshi. It's yeah. hard to say because the thing about Chinese terms is almost like four or five accurate ways to pronounce their, the words. Right. <laughs> we found that out the hard way on uh, the East meets the West. But yeah. basically, these creatures are typically depicted as like you know they're stiff because they've got rigor mortis. Um, they're dressed in a Chinese shroud, which is um, I, I guess it can be mistaken as official garments from the Xing Dynasty. And um, but they walk well. They don't walk. They have their arms outstretched because of the rigor mortis, and they can only hop because of the rigor mortis. Um, right. And usually, instead of drinking blood, they'll absorb the life force. Although in this movie, there was a lot of biting going on here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know that Samo was a big fan of Hammer films. Oh, okay. and um, and I know that he was trying to get Christopher Lee to appear in Encounters of the Spooky Kind. Oh wow. But, I suspect Golden Harvest didn't want to spend the money to get Christopher Lee in the film, but um, I know that he had requested possibly getting uh, Christopher Lee's, uh, you know, participation. So uh, Samo, I think, kind of puts in the, you know, makes gives you a little of the Hammer Vampire vibe because he likes those movies. Yeah, you can kind of see that now that you mentioned. You say Mister Vampire, you want blood sucking. You know, that's just. That's how it is. Right, right. Yeah, you could kind of see that influence in this movie. I hadn't thought about it, but now that you mention it, yeah, it makes total sense. 
Um, some of the methods they use, I'm not going to go over every single method that I found a shit ton online, but the ones that were used in the movie here, uh, for example, they have sort of this uh, octagonal mirror that right. basically, uh, you know, they're, they're terrified of their own reflections, which is kind of cool. Yeah. Which is interesting because, again, it's not like the Slavic vampires where they supposedly have no reflection. Right, right. Um, this one, I wasn't sure if this was in the movie, and I, I might have missed something, but um, supposedly if you have a, um, a stick or a piece of wood made from a peach tree, um, it that can defeat the evil spirits. Now, remember there was a point in the movie where, um, uh, what's his name, Master Cow had this sort of uh, like a, a, almost like a dagger, but it was bigger than a dagger, and it would like light up with this cheesy 80s effect. I wonder if that was it. Did I miss something? That it looked like it was okay. It looked like it was. It's a wooden, like a wooden Tai Chi sword. And what I'm assuming is he's got some sort of uh, Taoist powered Tai Chi. Tai Chi being a, a very Taoist martial art right. in in, um, in style and philosophy. So a lot of this is based on Taoist superstitions. Which apparently are are almost alien to us because we see stuff like sticky rice or yeah. a little blood. freezing them and then the little talismans that would be they would put on their heads to keep them still and um the ringing the bells to command them because they cannot these vampires supposedly cannot see they only go by breath right and uh and hearing they they hear your heartbeat or your your breathing and which leads to some really really ingenious slapstick comedy in this film yeah (laughs) um i'm gonna skip a bunch of these ones because it's not really relevant but there was um there was one thing they used was they would have thread uh, and it would be dyed or stained with this concoction they made that would, was a combination of black ink, chicken blood, and burnt talisman. Right. So I thought that was kind of cool because it had this sort of... I thought they were going to garrot a, a vampire every so often because it looked like that was going to happen, but instead it was more like the vampires touching an electrified fence. Yeah, it's more spectacular because then you can have a stuntman fly back and do a flip or whatever, and and because that's what the audiences want to see. They want to see that physical action and energy. So uh, they give themselves a lot of gimmicks to work with for suspense angles and action angles, uh, particularly in the various sequels and follow-ups and everything. I don't know how much of it they invented for this film because you know we for years we thought a lot of the werewolf mythology was centuries old and it turns out it was just a screenwriter of the wolfman making it up yeah <laughs> so i don't want to say oh this is what they really believe because i think a lot of this stuff is probably invented for the film just to make it more fun right so, right <laughs> yeah yeah and, and that's what i think it is i don't you know i i'm not sure if they're even portrayed as very threatening in old chinese literature and movies right um it, it, it's almost like a you know how here in america our our mythology of the zombie used to be they were workers. That was the Haitian voodoo idea of the right. zombie. They weren't like these flesh eating monsters. They were just kind of like brain dead workers. And, um, and and now that's totally changed. You couldn't even tell, you know, you couldn't tell people about plague of the zombies or the zombies of Mora Tau or whatever the film is called. It's like, you can't even get by with that. It's right. The mythology has been changed. You can't probably do a werewolf movie the way werewolf, uh, mythology was done in the 19th century. You have to follow the Universal Studios <laughs> Lon Chaney Jr. werewolf. You right. To be the Wolfman. Exactly. Silver bullets <laughs> and, uh, you know, full moons and all that stuff. No, and it's funny too. There was one thing I had read, and it's, um, 
they used a lot of rice in this movie, and I was surprised after having seen the film and then reading up on you know the Chinese mythologies that they um, and I've heard this before about other kinds of cryptids, which is if you throw like a handful of coins or a handful of rice on the ground, they have no choice. It's almost like OCD. They have to stop and count each and every <laughs> grain of rice or every coin, and that's a way you can get away from the monster is by doing that to them. They surprisingly didn't do that in this movie. I don't know if maybe it would have just been boring watching a vampire on his hands and knees counting rice. I, I think you've got the answer there. I yeah. think the boring factor you know to have these ocd uh creatures it just wouldn't have been all that fascinating you know, can't can't get a lot of stunt work out of that i think and you know i just thought of something because uh, um the term hopping vampire popped up in my notes and i for some reason i thought this movie had a little kid hopping vampire in it but that must be a different film Do, does that ring a bell at all i think it's a mr vampire 2 oh okay Okay. And there's also there's a series of films that were directed by Yin Wu Ping during his kind of in between period where he was just kind of doing comedies and and horror stuff, and um and it's an entire series. Of, I think it's called Happy Ghost, and I think those are always about kid vampires. In fact, the kid vampire movies were like a subgenre of, the, of their own, where uh, because kids love Mr. Vampire, I guess in in the various Asian movie circuits and so they just made a bunch of kitty vampire films you know so, right right hey, hey kids would go see them <laughs> so uh, i i couldn't imagine i guess we've done it with the little vampire type of movies but uh they really went full force with it it was a vibrant subgenre that must have made money because there's sequels to the happy ghost films wow that's funny I love finding new genres that I've never heard of and subgenres. <laughs> yeah, and it's funny because as fanatical as I am for uh, Hong Kong movies from this era, I am. I realized just about a year ago how how many of these I've never seen because there was just tons of them. There were so many, and back in the eighties and nineties, I favored you know mostly the martial arts action stuff and sometimes the gun action stuff like John Woo and. Um, and this stuff was um, wasn't as easily available, and uh, there wasn't as much fan interest in it, so it was tougher to get copies of these things. Unless you live next to a Chinatown video rental place, and uh, my friends who did, of course, they watched all of these damn things. You know, hey, I saw the Spooky Family, I saw the Happy Ghost Four, you know, the, whatever. <laughs> and now that they're getting re-released on Blu-ray and DVD in um, in Hong Kong slash China. Uh, I'm, I'm getting to rediscover them and I'm, I'm really enjoying that because there's a sense of seeing all these movies you never saw before. You know, it feels new. It's like, hey, I may not like what's in the theaters, but at least these old movies I've never seen before that are pretty interesting are getting released. So I'm very happy to start exploring the, you know, the uh, the Hong Kong ghost cinema again or the vampire comedies. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, I remember my son a couple years ago basically said to me, referring to the East Meets the West podcast that I do. Um, he's like, well, you're probably just about done with those, right? I'm like, oh no, oh no. There's like upwards of six or seven hundred Shaw Brothers no. movies and spaghetti westerns. <laughs> he's like, oh really? Yeah, yeah. It's like there's there's too much to explore, and um, I like with spaghetti westerns. I've noticed a lot of the fandom will only stick with like the Eastwoods, the Django's, and um, you know your basics, and but there's so many more and. They got into so many crazy ideas. And that's the same way with the, the Chinese vampire films. They work so many different gimmicks of them. It, it's crazy. Right. It, it, it's just, it's phenomenal that 
you know, I really miss having this type of vibrant uh, movie boom of, of different genres because you could watch something new every week and even what would be considered the mediocre B movie was still more fun than what is an A movie now, you know? Right. It's just, it's it's that kind of fun and you didn't have to watch the same film twice in a year. I mean, you could see something new every week that was interesting or at least watchable or fun. It, it's... um. Really miss that. I, th- I think a lot of the enthusiasm has gone out of filmmaking in recent years, and it's yeah. the same in in Hong Kong and China. China has never picked up that energy at all. It's like Hong Kong; they quit making this type of stuff around '92, and uh, ever since then, it's just never been the same. Right, right, yeah, that makes sense. So, one of the things about uh, the way they stop the vampires in this movie, and it's kind of similar to when we did Kung Fu Zombie, and in my research, I found that the the Chinese vampire is a lot more like a zombie than an actual yeah. blood-sucking, you know, Western European vampire. Um, and one of the major ways that they can stop them, which we also saw in the other film there, was um, you take, I always like to call them post-it notes, but you t- basically take a yellow piece of paper, and it, there's like talismans written on it, and stick it on their forehead, and that immobilizes the vampire. Right. Um, and the other thing that was new to me, at least in this movie, at least this go around, because I didn't remember it from seeing it before, is the um, the two guys, uh, Cow and his buddy there, they bite the tips of their fingers to to draw blood, and then they just literally touch the fingertips and, and put a little blood on the forehead of the vampires, and that also immobilizes them, which I thought that was a really cool way of doing yeah. it. Is better than having them count rice or coins. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. When, when when you when the reality isn't visually exciting, invent something more fun. And these are probably all parts of Taoist mythology, which I've I've never really looked into. But I think I've unfortunately I passed up a chance at buying one book that had, was a complete guide to all the symbols and traditions of Taoism. And I was like, oh man, I should have picked that up because it probably was fascinating to read. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it another definitely thing definitely would enhance the viewing of these films. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'm doing the same thing. I'm like, geez, I wish I I had done more research, you know, well in advance. But uh, next time around, I um, you know, one thing too that you could in, uh, a way of getting away from the vampire is to hold your breath because apparently these ones are blind. Although, wasn't it the one the 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 real powerful one at the end of the movie, he could actually see, and that kind of shocked the main characters. Yeah, he was the surprise. He was more like a Western vampire. He was yeah. kind of like those monstrous vampires in Blackula. Right. That I think, I think that's what inspired Salem's Lot, at least the TV movies or the TV miniseries, because it's kind of the monster vampire that isn't talking. He's just roaring and, and aggressively, you know, uh aggressively powerful i guess would be a description for it but uh but yeah obviously they needed a, a different threat in the finale that would give uh you know chen shu ho an excuse to do his acrobatics and lam chen ying could do cool stuff and you get you get the the crazy bumps and crazy stunts and uh, i think that's a real reason that he's all powerful like that okay yeah that makes sense that makes sense um, one thing that added to the comedy, too, was something else I read in the mythology of the vampires is that one way to defeat them is to suck the creature's dying um, breath out of it. And they attempted that to great comedic value because it yeah. didn't work at all. <laughs> right. 
<laughs> I thought that was terrific. And um and that that shows that they're more interested in constantly having something entertaining on the screen. Like right. there's no you watch you watch these movies, there's no long shots of streets, there's no now like we now see drone shots of the countryside or anything. You're always looking at something happening, something bizarre, interesting, and they how they come up with these gags, it's, it's really something else. And I think that's what helps when you have uh, the different writers coming up with, with different jokes to uh, to kind of keep everything fresh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I almost wonder, too, did you get the impression? I mean, you've seen a lot more of these than I have, that the the filmmakers, they knew that a hopping vampire is kind of silly. So they use that to their advantage. At least that's the impression I got. Yeah, definitely, definitely. They um they knew that you had to give the audience a bit more, and I think um it's it's odd when you think about it, but for a decade they had all these films where they seemed to just be they seemed to move the Overton window with every film, like in terms of just piling on the action and piling on the suspense and just really giving the audience a roller coaster ride. And I wonder. Maybe uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark was a huge hit in Hong Kong. I'm sure it was. And uh, and I think they just all admired Spielberg so much they wanted to show that they could outdo it. Or it gave <laughs> them a challenge to say, hey, well, let's see if we could do something on our budgets that'll just give you this breakneck speed. I mean, you look at um, Temple of Doom. And Temple of Doom is considered to be, you know, a lot of fans don't like it or whatever. I think it's actually the best of the Indiana Jones movies. And... And because it's just nonstop in your face roller coaster ride, uh, logic be damned. And then you read the behind the scenes, and it's like Spielberg and Lucas were both getting divorced when they made that movie. And I was like, well, gee, they need to get divorced more often because their movies rock when they're under a lot of stress. Because it's just like, man. But I think I feel like every Hong Kong film from that era. They're working with that idea. What can we do next to just completely blow the audience away? And you don't see that in movies today. You don't see that that type of enthusiasm. And that's what I that's what I feel when I watch this movie. It's like unpretentious. They're just going to pile it on and see if you can handle it. And their audience could handle this stuff. Because if you think about Hong Kong, uh, they're going to be on their cell phone while they're reading a newspaper and... and uh, listening to a radio broadcast while catching a train. That's kind of the, it was a, it was a very multitasking lifestyle in the eighties and nineties in Hong Kong. It's like um, just crazy. And I think the movies can kind of reflect that. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. That makes total sense. Um, so I just wanted to give a quick, uh, just a real brief historical background on this because I was watching it and I was trying to figure out when it took place. And um, like I read at the beginning, when I found the um, the synopsis of the film, it said it took place in the Republic era. So I looked that up and that was basically between 1912 and 1949, um, where I guess China was a sovereign state or, or yeah, the Republic of China was a sovereign state recognized as the official official designation of China when it was based on mainland China prior to the relocation of its central government to Taiwan as a result of the Chinese Civil War. So by my estimation, and correct me if, if you think I'm wrong, I th figured this movie took place in the 1930s. It would be probably right. Yeah. I wouldn't disagree with that. I, I know that time period is not important to them. I know right. Chang Che did not care if his Shaolin movies were historically accurate. He did not care at all. Like that's why they don't have shaved heads 
in a lot of his Shaolin films. Uh, you know, they have the long cues, the long hair and everything. <laughs> um, but and he didn't care if costumes were accurate because he figures the audience doesn't care. And I think with this, it could be 1930s. It could be 1915. But it all kind of fits because it doesn't really matter because they didn't care. You know, it's right. Like, hey, you know what era this takes place in. We don't need to beat you over the head and show you a newspaper and show you a billboard with King Kong on the movie marquee or anything like that. Yeah, right. Because American movies like in um, and I guess British films do it, too, where they they always have to call attention to the year. You know, hey, The Godfather 2 is opening next week. Okay, this came out. This is set in 1973. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> hey, Jaws is opening next week. Okay, it's 75. You know, <laughs> hey, car. You know, it's like over there, they don't care. It's like, you know what era it takes place in. So we don't really have to beat you over the head with anything. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god yeah and that always confuses me and and my co-host pat on the east meets the west one where watching a shaw brothers film and then someone's got like a luger or or even a car or even in like a spaghetti western when they're driving vehicles i forget which one yeah. it was that we were watching and i was like wait a minute it took me halfway through the movie to realize they were cars i'm like i thought this was the old west you know <laughs> <laughs> well it's like um it's like my my friend Eric Zaldiver, who I consider a, basically a spaghetti western scientist, and we've had him on uh, Midnight Movie Cowboys frequently whenever we talk spaghetti westerns. And uh, Zaldiver said, you know, t if you use accurate time you know, period pieces where you're trying to figure out where all these westerns are set, it's like you would have to accept by the guns and technology that it's 1883. Or it's 1890 because they're always using guns that were not available until those years, you know. Or right. like they're it'll be set in 18, it'll be set during the Civil War, and they've got a, a you know Colt pistols that were not invented until 20 years later. So he's like, you know, you just can't even nail that nail down a time period for these things. Yeah, <laughs> and the Italians more than likely just didn't care. They didn't you care. Know? Yeah, we talked about the Italians before <laughs> on the show, but they didn't care. I thought it was funny how. Um... What was that? I think it was uh, Master Cow and and one of his students. The, the second one, um, they didn't know how to drink coffee. <laughs> yeah, like, that's it's kind of uh, they love to get that. I've noticed something more as I get older when I watch these, appreciating more in these scenes where there's sort of a uh, uh, boy Western stuff is really alien. You know, yeah, yeah, coffee. What is this coffee? Oh, why do women wear skirts like this and high heels? You know, it's a sort of like if you watch the movie My Young Auntie, the uh, Shaw Brothers film, uh, that all that's all about the westernization of China and how the characters aren't really responding well to it. Right, right. Yeah, I could tell that because they, they get served a cup of black coffee and then the cream is on the side. And so was do you think the girl Ting was messing with them because she takes a sip of the coffee and then takes a sip of the cream and then uh Choi does the same thing but then she either she was messing with him it wasn't clear to me either she was messing with him or she didn't know herself oh, and okay. she was and she was thinking she could you know yeah cuz then she later puts the cream and sugar into the coffee and then okay, he, she was she was trolling him then. She was trolling him in yeah. 1935 China. Because <laughs> then he's putting cream and sugar on his desserts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, there is that, that sort of westernization thing that's always... Because in Hong Kong, a lot of their schooling is based on the British school system, or it was. 
And um, I, I think there's always a lot of that that kind of hidden ethnic ethnic comedy or whatever in or class comedy in, in their movies. And, you know, the big influence on Hong Kong comedic films is the uh, stuff from England, like the Carry On movies. Right. They love that stuff. And they love the French movies. They they like Jacques Patti and and all these French uh, comedians. They like Jerry Lewis. You know they like they like uh, Western comedy. So they try to imply their own version of it. I think in a way. Right, right. There was so much good comedy in this. Like, there's a scene where, um, at first when they meet Ting, or actually, it might have been the second time. I'm not sure. She goes into the store, and the, what's his name? Um, I can't remember Choi's buddy there uh is running the store and he, he thinks she's a prostitute because yeah. the older lady came in and said oh there's a customer coming and she's a prostitute and so they're having this conversation where he's thinking she's a prostitute and she's looking for cosmetics and it's this hilarious conversation because they both have no idea that the other is completely misinterpreting what they're saying <laughs> <laughs> They uh they they like their prostitute jokes and they like their their classy women uh, versus prostitution gags all the time. Uh, <laughs> so there's, there's a lot of those in there, but um, what Chinese humor is? They're very much based on wordplay more than people would think, and uh, or I guess maybe it's Cantonese humor, and uh, it works really well. But I also think that's one reason. Like I watched the English dub version this time does not work well for me at all and usually i'm not i have no problem with english dubbing but the dubbing on this i think chinese comedy is so tough to translate into english dubbing you're better off with the subtitles and listening to it in cantonese yeah i agree i I really think it just works better because you cannot capture a lot of that in a mouth movement and i don't think the dubbers over there are were capable of capturing that kind of that comedy in their performance that sort of subtle comedy but uh but i noticed that this time it's like okay usually i'm in favor of english dubbing but with cantonese comedy you can't do it you have to watch it in cantonese with subtitles and hopefully some decent subtitle translations right right and it's funny because i was thinking about something similar recently my my grandson's five and he really loves the black and white popeye cartoons they're on uh amazon prime right now and oh wow yeah, and it's it's great. We even tried watching a color one. He's like, I don't like this one. I want the black and white one. And in those, if you recall, you know, Popeye's constantly muttering under his breath. And I remember right. thinking, I don't know if that would translate well in other countries, in other languages, I should say. Right, because I think it was assumed that he's cursing. Yeah, I mean, same. actually, I watch everything with subtitles, and you can actually see what he's saying, and he's just sort of—he's just muttering about what's going on. It's nothing. Right, right. I'll show you what. Well, <laughs> Fred Flintstone did that, I think. From I haven't watched Flintstones in decades, but that's right. Yeah. I think Fred Flintstone used to mutter under his breath, <laughs> grouching. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> I think it's just a common comedic thing. But yeah, kids like black and white comedy. I've, I've noticed my son like Three Stooges. And, oh yeah, and comedy they showed them. It's like kids don't have a problem with black and white. It's like when they become teenagers, maybe a little impatient with things, then they have uh, black and white. Yeah, <laughs> it's just black and white. Oh, that's old. I don't want to watch that. But even <laughs> when I was a kid, I loved black and white comedy, and it's like Abbott and Costello. I just thought were great. Oh yeah, and Laurel and Hardy. I loved all those. Yeah, yeah. It's like, and I could still just pop in a Blu-ray or DVD of those and and just laugh my head off. Right. 
So there was one scene in this movie I didn't quite get, and maybe you can explain it to me, but there was a character that comes across this sort of ghostly funeral procession. What was mm-hmm. that all about? It seems sort of out of left field. Um, oh, I'm trying to remember the character. Are you talking about the ghost that uh, tried to seduce the guy? It was prior to that, I believe. It was, I think, it was him walking through the woods, and there was just these these ghosts in the middle of a funeral procession, and then like nothing happened. They just then walked away. I think they are ghosts from the from that the Chinese mythology or the legends that. I have that book of uh, strange stories from a, a Chinese store or something. I forget what the title is, but I have the penguin classics edition and I've not read it yet. And apparently all of that stuff that we see in these films is explained in there. Oh, okay. all of those stories are in there. So I think they're, they're kind of like they're famous characters from Chinese mythology or, or ghost legends that um, we just don't know. You know, yeah. it's like trying to explain Spider-Man to, uh, the Chinese have never seen it or something. It's just kind of like, <laughs> you know, or uh, Black Bart or Popeye, you know, it's just like if you're yeah. trying to explain something that they take it for, you know, they take it for granted so they can throw that in their movie. And and we were just completely, what the hell is this? Like, I don't know. <laughs> you know? Well, that's the thing, you know, and I, I, I wouldn't actually for myself. For my own purposes, I would not classify this as a completely batshit crazy movie, but there's a right. lot of great stuff in this. Um, and just like when when the uh, the ghost chick just goes full on demonic and her head pops off, and yeah. I mean that was some scary shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's really well done. That's uh, that's where they. That's to me. That's sort of like just jamming every everything in there to make it entertaining. Right. It's right. just like they different subplots, different creatures. And, you know, American films aren't paced that way. They're not structured that way. And they can have is they just want to keep you entertained. So they have something for everybody. And they, they have this comedy, they have this action, then they have this horror stuff that's really well done. And it's just like it's just to keep the movie going and, and to keep you having fun, not to alienate you or uh, tick you off or anything. It's kind of it's very much a. 1940s B movie attitude, but updated for 80s Hong Kong in color, and you know for what is really I think was an A picture by Hong Kong standards. Oh yeah, yeah, and you know that makes me think. You know, we, we were talking earlier about how most modern films aren't as enjoyable as these kind of films, but there was one that came out probably like six or eight months ago. I don't know if you've seen it. It's called Malignant. I haven't seen it. I, I have heard I've heard of it because I think it was a big deal for a few weeks. I highly recommend it. It's one of those movies that all of a sudden it becomes batshit crazy. And that's when it won me over. And it, it's right, like right. I remember afterwards thinking, I wish they could make more movies like this like they used to, because it's very much in the vein of just holy shit. What the fuck is going on? This is insane. Right, right. <laughs> well, have you ever have you ever shown like Evil Dead 2 to people expecting like a friday the 13th type of film yeah and they and they look at you like you're crazy this happened to me in the 80s but they look at you like you're crazy like why did you why are you showing this this is silly this isn't a horror film you know it's like they cannot handle that type of energy or that kind of bending of the rules in a genre you know they want the guy in the hockey mask and the dumb girls you know walking in a room and not flipping on a light switch they they need that sort of stupid the stupidity right. and predictability it's like <laughs> but meanwhile i'd rather have what's in evil dead 2 with the the hillbilly 
the girl swallowing an eyeball that flies into her mouth. You know? <laughs> like, when, by the time we got to that scene, they didn't know what the hell I had rented for the for them to watch. They're like, what, what is going on with you? Why did you rent this? Yeah. Like, <laughs> they don't appreciate that type of, hey, we're going to do anything to entertain you. And I think that's what a lot of people liked about Sam Raimi movies to be were like a weekly occurrence in Hong Kong cinema. So it's just that type of energy and uh, need to entertain. And by the way, I do not think Sam Raimi has come close to that type of stuff in this century. You know, it's like for for the positives of of some of his movies he's made in the last two decades, he's not the same not the same filmmaker. Yeah, yeah, I think his he he's evolved as a filmmaker, but I also think he's kind of at the whim of the corporate. Um, you right, know, right. He's up. evolved into the type of filmmaker I didn't want him. Right. <laughs> yeah, he's a competent craftsman, but I like the Sam Raimi of Crime Wave and Evil Dead too. That's yeah. what I want. Yeah. You know, that that's what blows me away. That stuff knocks me out. I think I think what Sam and this could be is a whole other topic for another show, but I think like Sam Raimi will do the big budget films probably for the paycheck and probably because he likes the material, but then he'll go and do a, a much smaller film like a drag me to hell kind of thing. Yeah, I didn't like Drag Me to Hell, but I did like A Simple Plan. Yes, yeah. With Bill Paxton, right? And people forgot he made A Simple Plan, but I, re I really enjoyed that movie. I thought maybe he would do more stuff like that, like do a, a crime drama like that, that he, he seemed to have a good affinity for. It. Never saw his baseball movie. Maybe that's good. I don't know. Oh, I never saw I didn't even know he made a baseball movie. I think he made a baseball movie with like Kevin Costner. I guess everybody does sooner or later. Oh, that's but. <laughs> For the love of the game, or something like that. You know, they all have the same predictable titles. I just, I just don't see them. But I guess being Sam Raimi, he had point of view of the baseball flying around, so oh. <laughs> smacking into somebody's head. <laughs> right, right, right. That's what I want. That's the Sam Raimi baseball film I want to see. Oh man! So there's a lot of great little touches in this movie, like, like the master has this device that looks like a compass and it helps him track vampires, although it doesn't really work all that well. Right. Um, and then there's an, a hilarious scene where Harry's trying to file Dan's teeth down. <laughs> <laughs> the fangs. <laughs> I remember. That, yeah, great stuff. Uh, <laughs> very Ricky Hoy comedy right there. And there was one thing that made me think of Bud Spencer when the the final vampire there, the big bad, um, as all the group of vampires on him because the um, the the master's buddy was controlling them, and they all pile on him, and he does the Bud Spencer way, like the Incredible yes. Hulk, where he just flips them all away. <laughs> yeah, because uh, the Bud Spencer movies were big there, um, the, and the, I'm sure the Spencer and, and Hill films were even bigger. And uh, there, you'll definitely Bud Spencer worked in Hong Kong with those stunt crews for Flatfoot in Hong Kong. So yeah, they, oh, yeah. they, it was definitely a Bud Spencer inspired scene. Yeah. And uh, the last thing I want to bring up is that there's a great man on fire scene in this movie, which you always hear about the ones from American films, but this went on for quite a while and they threw more shit on him to, to make the fire increase. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Only in Hong Kong where they probably have no regulation. Right. For the and when they do this, and I just hope the guy didn't get burned because I don't want to think that I've enjoyed this thing. And this, this, uh, whoever was in that costume was got serious injuries. <laughs> That's hilarious. So, uh, in wrapping this up, uh, John, what are your final thoughts on Mr. Vampire? Yes. Uh, it's a great film, it's a classic. I would rate it like a four star film. 
I think it's one of the if you had to pick 10 Hong Kong movies to watch to to understand why people love this cinema, uh, this is definitely would be in that top 10. It's not in my top 10 favorite of all time, but it's definitely in the top 10. Hey, this is what it's all about. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'd forgotten how much I enjoyed this film. I I liked it even more this time around. Right. And I I have one interesting follow up to this is that uh, Golden Harvest attempted an English language version with American actors and stopped filming after like three weeks. (laughs) And in the in the cast was Jack Scalia, Tanya Roberts, who was fired and then replaced with michelle phillips of the mamas and the papas and michelle phillips is apparently very very willing to work in this film she was very enthusiastic about it uh yun Hua was playing the priest instead of uh lem jing ying but apparently they had and ricky lao was directing and apparently they had so many issues because jack scalia was frustrated working with hong kong actors who couldn't speak english very well so he couldn't really act with them and huh. I, and I guess he was impatient. And but apparently Michelle Phillips was a sweetheart on the set. But Raymond Chow looked at the footage and he said, "There's no reason to continue this." But I believe they were going to call it Phantom Fighter because there was a popular Nintendo game based on Mr. Vampire called Phantom Fighters, and um, they they were going to call it like Phantom Fighter the movie. Um, however, there's also uh, talk that it was titled Demon Hunter. It doesn't really matter. It was never finished and was shelved. And to this day, no one has seen the footage. And I know people in Hong Kong who know uh, guys who worked at, who worked at Golden Harvest. They will not talk about this film. <laughs> like producer David Chan, no relation to Jackie. Uh, he worked. He produced all the major Golden Harvest movies in the 80s. He will not speak about that incident of filming Phantom Fighter or Demon Hunter, whatever you want to call it. Oh, wow. <laughs> they will not. Apparently, it was just one of those. You know, we talk about how the Batgirl movie got shelved. This has happened more often than people realize. Yeah, they will start filming something, and in a month, if it's just not gelling, if it's a difficult shoot, forget it, unplug the production. But this, this was going to be an attempt to get to do a Mister Vampire for North America and Europe, and try to get it into theaters and everything, and it just didn't work out. Oh my god! I would love to see the footage, though. Just this, the, yeah. The masochist did me wants to see it. Right. Just to- <laughs> you know, just to see what they were attempting. I find it fascinating. Unfinished films are very fascinating to me. That's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this movie, the production value was great. Um, the The film just overall looks great. The action was incredible. Um, the The comedy was hilarious throughout. Like there was, I don't, with the exception of you know, like I said, that one scene of the ghostly funeral possession, the procession. There wasn't anything yeah. in this that I didn't really get. You know, like I said, it would have been nice to see um, Chiang Shang in that role, although I can see why he's not. And but what would have been really cool, and I wish they had done it. I think on uh, East meets the West, we covered the film um, Heaven and Hell. Which yeah. uh, we did not really particularly care for. I think part of it was we didn't really get it. But um, I would have right. liked to have seen the Venom mob in a horror film like this. Like the Venoms going up against these vampires would have been awesome. Yeah, and those guys were kind of done in Hong Kong by the time these films came about. And right. and Chang Che didn't want to do that type of movie. I mean, he made one like that, Attack of the Joyful Goddess. And I think that has a couple of the Venoms in it. And uh, Changshing might be in it. It's been a while since I've seen it. Uh, but that is probably the closest Chang Che came to making something like that. Yeah. But uh, 
Shaw Brothers kind of done by then. They didn't really want to move into the, you know, doing the vampire films and such. And uh, they just, they were kind of done with producing movies. But um, Golden Harvest had kind of taken over to where their stuff was being released in Shaw theaters. So um, the guys who were willing to go work over at Golden Harvest, like Chin Su Ho basically went from, he took that bus from Shaw Brothers to Golden Harvest and made Golden Harvest movies. And um, because he had starred in some of the, he was in uh, Cheng Che's Two Champions of Shaolin. And uh, he was also in Holy Flame of the Martial World, which is a really fun, crazy film uh, with a lot of supernatural stuff. But um, he uh, made that that switch to Golden Harvest pretty well. Uh, Lo Mang, I think, tried to do some movies at Golden Harvest, but didn't work out for him. Right, right. And the other guys were Taiwanese. So I think they just went back to Taiwan and made movies there. Yeah, that makes sense. They were never yeah. accepted as stars in Hong Kong, I think. They were just kind of like, you know, cause, probably because they were Taiwanese. Right, you know? right. Yeah, I've read that about, like, Philip Kwok and stuff. Yeah, and we don't we don't realize that they can be very, um, I'm not sure what the word is. It's, it, it would be the, the city version of tribalism, but it's like, you know, hey, we don't we don't want Taiwanese stars here in Hong Kong. <laughs> you know, we right. have more Hong Kong stars. <laughs> They, they they can speak their lousy Mandarin. We 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 like our Cantonese, you know. Whatever. Yeah, yeah. Well, John, this has been awesome. Thank you for joining me on this discussion of Mister Vampire. Sure, and always a blast. Can you tell the the listeners where they can find you online? www.midnightmoviecowboys.com should get you there. And you can also find us on YouTube. Just do a search for Midnight Movie Cowboys, and uh, our channel will come up. Excellent, excellent. Now, are those videos that you're doing, or is it just uh, we are doing audio? videos? We are we are actually doing video uh, podcasts now. Um, I was a little against it, but because uh, I don't like being seen on camera, but I've had to get used to it, and uh, it's it's worked out okay for us. And I mean, it's only really useful for whip out your junk, which is our segment where we show what we bought that week. <laughs> so. <laughs> so um, uh, That's awesome. So if you want to see our junk get whipped out, go to the YouTube channel. But <laughs> I think the audio version is fine. I personally prefer podcasts on audio. I'll go to the gym. You know, I'll listen to a, a, a podcast on the elliptical or treadmill or whatever the hell, you know. Yeah. But, um, you know, I, I prefer podcast audio, but some people want a video. They got it. We, we give you that option, but you can, you can do either one. I don't, I don't care. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. Well, thanks again, John, and we'll be talking to you soon. Sure. Always a blast. Okay, folks, that's all the time we have for today's episode. Thank you for joining us for our special 2022 13 Days of Hallotober event in which we're discussing vampire films this year. I just want to briefly remind you that we've got a live streaming monthly series called The Fright Lounge in which we discuss all horror media for seasoned horror fans as well as those of you who don't know if you want to get into horror. We've also got a new podcast called The Cult Movie Lounge in which award-winning blogger Robert Manell and I discuss all cult movies all the time. And here's, of course, our sister show, The East Meets the West, in which we discuss Shaw Brothers films and Spaghetti Western movies, all of which can be found at our website, Haven Podcasts. That's plural, havenpodcasts.com. And while you're at our website, be sure to click on our Patreon link and Tee Public link to help support the show. 
We've also got a YouTube page, so please go to youtube.com slash user slash UncleDeath1 and subscribe to it. And don't forget to hit that little bell so you get notifications when we put out new episodes. And of course, we want your feedback, so please email us at thenisnow42 at gmail.com. And you can also join in the conversation at our Facebook Then Is Now podcast group as well. Then Is Now podcast is part of the Dorkening Podcast Network, so please check out the other great shows there at thedorkeningpodcastnetwork.com. That's right, folks. And all of those links, like I said, they're on our website as well as in our show notes of every episode. And we are on all the podcasting apps. So if you like our show, please go to wherever you download your podcast from and leave us a great review because that bumps us up the list in the algorithm and helps more people to find us. Thank you for joining us today. Class dismissed. Now podcast is intended for entertainment, educational, and informational purposes only. Sounds, music, and clips played during this podcast are the property of their copyright holders. All original content is copyright Jupiter Media. shows like the one you just heard check out the dorkening podcast network at the dorkening.com